folks, good morning. Um, can I add my welcome to that of Julie's this morning as we, we gather here together, as we come to take a little bit more time to see what we're learning through uh, the message of 1 Corinthians. We've made it through to chapter 12. Uh, I do encourage you, if you have your Bible there, have it open as we look through um, aspects of, of what we're going to look at today. Let's, let's pray as we come. Father God, we come to approach an issue today that throughout the history of your church has caused division, has brought about exclusive groups, and has caused people to judge. So help us as we look at this, help us to to see how we should be living today as a community of Christ, as a people who follow you. Help us in our thinking and our understanding, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Throughout our time looking in 1 Corinthians, we've been seeing that Paul has been writing to a church that clearly he's very disappointed about. He's a church, a church that he himself was involved and instrumental in their foundation and teaching. And they've gone from the way, the true way that he had taught, they've become influenced again by the society around them, the, the life that they once knew, idolatry being one of the main things wanting to fall into the routines of what they once knew. But Paul throughout has been very pastoral. He's been careful and caring. He's wanted to communicate to this church that he loves them, that he, he does want his best for them, and he wants them to grow and be nurtured into a true community of Jesus Christ. He's already tackled from chapter 8 two different areas. He's challenged them about their participation in temple feasts, going in and partaking of food that has been offered to idols, going back to the old way of not understanding who their true provider was and is. Then secondly, he moved on to three issues involving their own gatherings, how they did things when they came together. And those are the last three things that we've looked at. Today he moves on and will continue to move on, addresses spiritual gifts and about being spiritual. Gordon Fee, a commentator in 1 Corinthians, Corinthians suggests that it is probably the most important area of teaching from Paul's point of view because here in particular the differences between him and them come to a head. As we go through this passage, we'll discover what their issue was. Let me remind you how Paul has come to address these things. From understanding, a letter has been sent to Paul, and this is his response to it. Concerned people in the church have written to him to, to share what's going on, share some of their concerns about how people have not been doing as Paul had instructed and indeed guided. So he starts in verses 1 to 3 by wanting to be very pastoral yet again. And he says, Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. Paul has a genuine care and concern for these people. He doesn't want them to be like they used to be. Because whenever they were pagans, as Paul describes them in his own language, before they came to Christ, they were completely ignorant of truth. They were running to whatever God they so required or desired. 
They ran to seek self-fulfillment. They ran to get what they wanted. The structure of that system would have been that the teaching of each god and deity would have been passed down from one generation to the next. And as stories often go, they get reinterpreted for every new generation. So in Corinth, it was quite easy to pick the God that you wanted, the God that you desired, to allow you to do what you thought was best, rather than adhering to some code, moral, ethical, spiritual, that allowed you to enjoy life in its fullness. Paul says these people are now on a cliff edge again, a cliff edge of going back down that road of ignorance if they don't fully understand what it means to be spiritual people and to be people who are filled with the Spirit of God. Paul uses the term in verse 1, spiritual gifts. And there's some debate as to what the language of this term means. The term used gifts here is not the same as what Paul has been using uh, in other letters and other writings. This is a more general use of the word gift, and it can also mean spiritual people. So Paul is going as wide as he can to help the people understand what he's trying to say and the message that he desires to bring to them. In verse 2, Paul says, you know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. He wants to remind them of where they've come from. He wants to remind them how far they've come in being freed from that desire of self-satisfaction and to be engaged in a relationship with Jesus Christ that gives them freedom unlimited and it also gives them the best life ever that God had planned. He wants to remind them that the things of the past are to remain in the past and not to fall into this way of them again. So Paul says, do not become ignorant. Don't fall along that path again. What Paul is addressing is a splitting point in the church. Two groups seem to be appearing, as he suggests, a spiritual group and a non-spiritual group. Ones who would say, because of this, this, and this, you're a spiritual person. And if you don't have this, well, then you're not so spiritual. So he is addressing this divide that is growing within the congregation or within the community of Christ. And what Paul is building up here in these verses is a very basic lesson about spirituality. And this is what it is. The spiritual person is any Christian who can say, Jesus is Lord and mean it. Vaughan Roberts, another uh, author on this passage, says, this conversion and the consequent acknowledgement of Christ's lordship is, to the only, is the only marker that distinguishes a spiritual from an unspiritual person. All Christians are spiritual. For Paul, it's inconceivable that anyone who has the spirit of Christ in them could ever say, Jesus, be cursed. Or to understand it in, in the terms that Roberts ha has given us, to deny the lordship of Christ and accept the lordship of another. Ultimately, the lordship of another is where we put ourselves as our own Lord. Paul is challenging these people to say, no one, no one who follows Christ will ever curse him. 
So therefore, those who say Jesus is Lord is a true spiritual person. Therefore, every Christian is spiritual. We've seen this before. Paul is picking up a thread that he's had over recent weeks, and that is the lordship of Jesus Christ. He's reminding them again, who is the one who you submit to? Are you submitting truly to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who did everything that had to be done to save your soul? Or are you submitting to something else, ultimately self? We cannot have split loyalties and allegiances. Jesus gives us a picture of this in Matthew 6 and verse 24, where he tells us of the difficulty of trying to fit God into our idea of what life should be like. Jesus, in this verse, is speaking specifically about money. We know you cannot serve both God and mammon, or you cannot serve both God and money. Jesus is very clear in saying, in the context that he's speaking, that it is about money. But he opens to us this wider picture that we cannot serve two masters. We will either love the one and despise the other. We will hate the one and be devoted to the other. Paul's echoing this message in these 11 verses. You cannot control God and fit him into the box that you desire him to be in. God cannot be boxed. He is the one who creates in abundance, gives in abundance, and loves in abundance. He requires the same from us, nothing less. Paul is conscious that what the Corinthians are doing is making God into what they desire him to be. Rather than being exposed to God in his teaching and catching the greater vision of who God is. So in verse 4, Paul moves on to give an overview of the understanding of spiritual gifts. I don't know if you picked it up in the reading, uh, the language that Paul uses. It's, he uses terms that are unifying. He says there are different kinds of, of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Different gifts, different kinds of service, but the same Lord and God. So the report had come about this division, and they're using these spiritual models that they have in their own heads to determine who, who's in and who's not. Who's the true spiritual person and who's not? And what Paul is trying to do is cap it at the very beginning to say, the spiritual gifts may be different, but as there is unity within the Godhead, so there must be unity among God's people. Paul is now moving into a phase of unity. He wants the church to be united. The church may differ, will differ, but Paul's call is unity in Christ. We can't have benchmarks that are self-made that put people in one category and in another. If we are found in Jesus Christ, that is where our unity lies. Everything else is secondary. Paul, using the example of Jesus Christ, 
calls the church to unity. And in this particular instance, he's using spiritual gifts as the example. The purpose of spiritual gifts is to bring glory ultimately to God, to glorify him and enjoy him forever so that the church of Christ can grow and be edified. I don't know if you've ever had the same experience as me. Perhaps you've gone to churches. There's a minister who used to go to my home congregation regularly to fill pulpit vacancies. And we were singing one Sunday morning a particular hymn that talks about joy and about the joy of having Christ. And he stopped the organist after the first hymn and said, looking down at you, you don't really mean it because it's not on your face. His intentions were very good. But is that a test? You don't love Jesus because you don't have a smile on your face? I've been involved in different churches worshipping throughout my university times, the most interesting of which was a Salvation Army Corps in England. It was quite charismatic, which was a huge surprise and shock for me. But because I didn't put my hands in the air, because I, I didn't cry every now and again, I wasn't a true spiritual person. And because I didn't speak in tongues, well, then there was questions if I was a Christian at all. This topic of spiritual gifts has brought about diversity, hurt, and pain within the church over the centuries. We've taken it, and we've used it to satisfy ourselves, normally in our favor. But Paul says that's not what it's about. Spiritual gifts are exactly that, gifts. No one can coerce God into getting them. No one can orchestrate their life so that all of a sudden they get a certain gift. God gives. He gives in abundance. And he gives to those who will be faithful with what he desires to give them. In verses 8 to 10, Paul goes through a range of spiritual gifts that are at work in the church. And I think it's fair to say that these are the things that the church in Corinth were going through. Otherwise, there would be no point in putting them in there. Remember, he is writing to this church, so they must understand what he's talking about. But before we get into those gifts, verse 7 is very helpful for us. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Rather than being a thing that should divide people, spiritual gifts are the one thing that should be the common good for God's people. It's not about who is more holy than the other. It's not about who is more spiritual than the other. Everything, every spiritual gift is given for the common good. It's given so that the church and the people of Christ can be built up to encourage and help the church grow more and more in love with Jesus. That's the purpose of what God gives his church. Everything else is secondary. So these are gifts. Gifts, appreciation, pure appreciation of love given without expecting anything in return. Gifts can be given without any merit. They're given simply because they can be given. 
So in the gifts that Paul mentions, here's a brief summary of verses 8 to 10 of what Paul is saying. The first he says is the message of wisdom. And Paul is very clever. Have we come across wisdom before? Yes, right at the very beginning, chapter 1, verses 17 to chapter 2, verse 16, where he challenged them about another divisive thing in the church, and that was who was of secret knowledge, secret wisdom, and who wasn't. And he says, some are given the message of wisdom. He is reshaping the focus of wisdom. Once again, he's saying it's not about what the world says, but wisdom is a gift that comes from God. He's stating that this gift is for those who can effectively communicate the message that Christ crucified is God's true wisdom, a recognition that comes only to those who have received the Spirit, the message of wisdom. Then he moves on to the message of knowledge. Again, he's addressing something that he's picked up in chapter 8. Paul is the most clever of writers as he consolidates each step of the way. The Corinthians were fascinated with knowledge, and with that came pride in their status of what they knew and how good they were telling others about it. So Paul, using the language that he does in this term, is referring to a gift of the ability to understand Scripture, the ability to have insight into the meaning of God's inspired Word. That is the message of knowledge. Then he says there's faith. Paul affirms throughout his writings that faith is given to every believer so that they can believe in the resurrected Jesus Christ and that there is atonement made for the sins of the world. But in this case, it is more akin to the faith that can move mountains. Gordon Fee remarks that it probably refers to a supernatural conviction that God will reveal his power or mercy in a special way in a specific instance. Faith, the ability to have the faith that would move mountains. He moves on to gifts of healing, and I guess this is a gift that needs little comment as we are and recognize the gift of healing. But the early church lived in regular expectation that people would be healed. And this comes through history because they based this on the Old Testament promises that in the Messianic age, God would heal his people. And Fee again remarks on this gift in the light of current culture. Only, among, only the intellectuals and in a scientific age is it thought it to be too hard for God to heal the sick. Have we lost our belief that God can heal with or without the advance of medicine? Have we lost the ability to believe that God can heal the gift of healing? He moves on to miraculous powers. Literally, this can be translated workings of miracles. And this gift most likely covers a broad range of supernatural events that ordinary language would go, that's a miracle. The miraculous powers. He then moves on to prophecy. In Paul's mind, prophecy was spoken by a person who spoke to God's people under the inspiration of the Spirit. That's what it was. 
having a clear conviction that this was God's message for his people in this time and in this age. The next one, distinguishing between the spirits, and there are two possible meanings for this gift. Firstly, it may be the ability to discern which is the Spirit of God and which are false spirits, or the ability to discern or properly judge prophecies, what we've mentioned just before. It seems possible that it may be the second meaning, the ability to understand prophecies with the pattern that is about to follow as we look at tongues and the interpretation of tongues. So that's where we go to, different kinds of tongues, the most controversial of all. What's Paul talking about? He seems to be talking about a language and a speech that is directed towards God. A language directed towards God and not others. It can be described as an unintelligible language, both to the speaker and to the hearer, as it is a mysterious language. Chapter 14 will speak a lot more about what this ability of tongues is and how it should be used. And then finally, he says the interpretation of tongues. It's an obvious companion to that of the gift of tongues because of their unintelligibility. The interpretation of tongues is a spirit-inspired gift of utterance. It may be given to the tongue speaker or to another. So there you have it, Paul's list. It's not exhaustive. There are more that he mentions in his writings. But what do we do with it all? What do we do with this passage? Paul concludes by saying, all these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he determines. No one gets to choose their gifts or to persuade God what they should get. We need to recognize that gifts are given by God, entrusted by God to us, to be used for the common purpose of his people. It's not about a badge of superiority or a test of how holy we are. Ephesians 4 verse 3, Paul urges us to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He assumes that there's something that binds people together, and that is their salvation in Jesus Christ. And from that, he anticipates that unity will come. He anticipates and assumes that this is far more important than the secondary issues that may divide and split. God gives. No one gets to choose. It's not a badge of superiority. Secondly, we need earnest, to earnestly seek God leading as to what spiritual gifts we have. Each of the spiritual gifts mentioned by Paul, although, as I've said, not an exhausted list, are available to everyone. We therefore need to pray to God, determine his leading, and allow others to encourage us as we sincerely seek what God has for us. But again, it's not about superiority. It cannot be, because whenever we think we are superior than others because of what God has given us, then we lose unity 
and love in the community of Christ. And then finally, we need to use the spiritual gifts God has given us. There's a great Ulster way of being humble. And in Ulster, being humble means that you don't put your head above the parapet. It means that if you think you have a gift, oh well, it couldn't possibly be me. I would be no good at it. So I'll shrink away into the corner and let someone else do it. I don't know if you're familiar with that. My mother's mantra is keep humble. Anytime I happen to say anything, keep humble. She does that wee nod of the head. But sometimes I want to challenge my mother, not out of arrogance, not out of an idea that I'm right and she's wrong, because of course she's right. Humility is required in the Christian life and in the Christian faith. But whenever we humble and shy away from the gifts that God has given us, whenever we use false humility because we are afraid of what people will say and what people will think, or because we're afraid we're going to get it wrong, well, then it doesn't do us any favors, and it certainly doesn't honor what God has given us. Remember, gifts are given. We have been entrusted. We are to be faithful stewards with what God has given us. These things are not easy. Nothing of the spiritual realm ever is easy. But I hope this morning that we have a confidence. However we determine and understand what is being said in this passage, I hope that we have a confidence that God has the very best for us, both in the physical world and in the workings of His Spirit. And with that confidence, we can go forward acknowledging everything that he has given us, having the freedom of knowing that we will not be judged or gossiped about because of what we desire to do for the sake of our God, but rather in a loving community. We will encourage one another. We will help one another. We will continue to love one another and be unified as a community of Christ. Let's pray.